Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're very welcome to Midweek Late Lunch. Great to have you with us on the show this afternoon. Lots of guests, chat, music and more besides over the next couple of hours. If you'd like to get in touch with us, always remind you of the usual numbers 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. And later on in the show, after three today, we are going to give a thousand euro to one of those people who told us about their January moments over the last few weeks. Yes, we're going to crown the winner today on the show after three. So stay with us to hear who will pick up that grand in cash. But let's begin today by reminding you that 40 years ago on this very day, Anne Lovett left for school with a pair of scissors in her school bag. She never intended going to school that day. You see, instead, she arrived at a local grotto in Granard, where she gave birth to a baby boy. Both Anne and her son died. She was only 15. And the story, I remember it well, sent shockwaves through Irish society. Writing about it in the Irish Examiner, a brilliant piece. I highly recommend it to you to read it. Liz Dunphy is the author. She's a journalist there and she joins me on Late Lunch this afternoon. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, Liz. Hi, Liz. She is with us. We see her there. All right, we can just pick up our audio. Liz, can you hear me? Hi, Liz. Hi, Liz, are you there? Yes. Hi, I am. Sorry, yes. I got cut off there. No, you're all right. Yeah, you're all right. These things happen at times with the technology. It's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Great to have you with us on this day. I congratulate you again about the wonderful piece you have in the Irish Examiner. I want to talk to you a wee bit about what you've written about. I did say there, it, it, it was the catalyst for huge change in Irish society. That's fair to say, Liz. I think that's very fair to say. Yes, absolutely. It was an incredibly tragic case, as anybody who's familiar with it will be aware. So uh, basically, 40 years ago today, this this young schoolgirl, Anne Lovett, who was 15 years old, basically went and gave birth to, sadly, a stillborn baby at the foot of a statue of the Virgin Mary um, in a town called Granard in County Longford. Um, at the time, it was it was a very different time, I think it would be fair to say. Um, so Anne, Anne hadn't told anyone one any adults I suppose about about her pregnancy as I said she was still in school at the time but it was a very different culture um so 
and things changed a lot I think as, as you intimated after after her tragic death but basically there was it was a time when you know contraception was still illegal without a prescription when sorry to discuss such terrible things on, on your lunchtime radio but when you know rape and marriage was still not a crime um, but after her death there was a huge outpouring of um, anger and frustration and sadness um, with people from all over the country writing into media stations to tell their own stories of 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 shame and of loss and of secrets that they felt that they had to keep to themselves because of societal pressures at the time and those societal pressures I think would be fair it would be fair to say were kind of driven by theocracy and by the power of the church at the time you know the the parish priest the archbishop the 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 priests had had huge control in irish life at that time and kind of catholic doctrine at that time in ireland was very much um against i suppose unmarried mothers and you know sexual relations outside of wedlock as they would have put it um and as you know magdalene laundries were still in existence at the time so women who did get pregnant outside of marriage a lot of them were just shunted off to these magdalene laundries and often were never seen again i mean in, and that that's very recent, you know. I remember my own mother telling me that her sister had a friend in school who suddenly disappeared. They never found out what happened to her. And they think that she was sent off to a Magdalene laundry and was never seen again in her community, you know. Um, it's, it's kind of shocking to think about it now because society has thankfully changed so much. And I think Anne's death was very much... Like I think, I think as I said in the article, a kind of clarion call for that change. Mm. I think it galvanised a lot of change and kind of opened people's eyes to the fact that actually, you know, okay, this poor child fell pregnant, uh, you know, as a young girl, but she died and her baby died because she felt that she couldn't go to anyone to help her and. You know, that's obviously a far, far worse thing to somebody for, for, than somebody getting pregnant. You know, I mean, yeah. it's crazy to think about now. So I suppose we all have a debt of gratitude in a way to Anne for kind of forcing us to, to really examine the issue and for forcing some of that belated change in Irish society. Yeah, I can remember those times. I lived through them. I'm familiar with the story at the time. It was horrendous. And, you know, it was a, a far different Ireland. You could imagine she was a child and she was pregnant and she never said anything. Our parents didn't know the school came out. She went to a convent school. It was a tough school, as you know. Uh, they said they didn't know either. They would have helped her. But what help was there at that time? Who do you turn to? Who would you tell? You were afraid of your life to tell. You didn't know what had happened. And she headed off there on her own. And what happened subsequently is just really, really a horror story. You, you mentioned like about, uh, uh, and you're right, it's a, a, a catalyst for change. I, I spoke a few weeks ago to Susie Byrne, Gay Byrne's daughter, the late Gay Byrne, and we talked about this particular case, funny enough, and the impact it had on our father's radio show and the letters that flowed and what happened subsequently. You allude to that in your piece as well. Yeah, and actually, I think the news of her death was actually first announced through, you know, broadcast media mm. on um, Gay Byrne's Late Late Show, I think on the TV show. Um, or perhaps it was the radio. I think it was the TV show um, because it, an article had appeared. I think maybe it was in the Sunday Tribune with news about the death and he read it out. And I think that began yeah. that whole deluge of, of, of letters and um, and outpourings of grief, really, that, that you alluded to there. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a huge, huge outpouring and galvanising of... Um, of, yeah, of anger and of of this will to change. Um, mm. I think it was really 
down to the public, I suppose, ultimately, that things did change, um, that people pushed for that change. And actually, interestingly, I was talking to Orla O'Connor um, of the National National Women's Council of Ireland for this piece. And she said that, you know, when when society has brought about changes, um, that it often has followed real fight from the public and also real tragedies like Anne Lovett's death, also like, you know, Savita Halapanavar's awful death um, before repealing the Eighth Amendment and allowing some abortion in Ireland um, around Vicky Phelan and, you know, the cervical cancer scandal yeah. and having more awareness of women's health, that it often has been a tragedy yes. of a woman's death that has then sparked this pu- huge public outcry that, that has then forced government to implement policies to change things, you mm. know, to better protect people. You, you know, I, I, I am familiar at the time, the, 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 the local priest there from the pulpit condemned the publicity this got. He said people should mind their own businesses. It was a local issue, should be dealt with locally when you think of it. And, you know, it had a, a, a an awful impact on Granard, who sort of, Granard recoiled into its as well. You've been, you know, uh, talking to the people about Granard today. You know, what do they remember? What is it like today? Does it still have an impact? It still has a big impact. Yeah, I spoke to a few people who were from Granard. They didn't want to be named because there's still such hostility amongst locals there to speaking about this publicly. A lot of people really still want to keep this closed. They, you know, want to keep it locked behind, you know, their own doors in Granard and not to be spoken about anywhere else, really. Um, I was actually contacted on social media by somebody who said that they brought flowers to um, the grave of the Lovitz and even people in, in the graveyard apparently, now I haven't verified this, but apparently even people in the graveyard said, no, no, leave them, go away. You know, there's it, the town really, a lot of people in the town really closed in in around itself, I, like I suppose maybe as a protective measure, I, I, I'm sure people there locally want to protect, um, you know, the Lovett family. Mm. And but yeah. but also I think a lot of it is just about not really wanting to confront, you know, the ugliness of it and the sadness of it and the just mundane cruelty of, of the way we lived our lives in Ireland and the way we treated women in particular and unmarried um, pregnant women in particular. You know, we have a terrible, terrible history of the way we've treated unmarried pregnant women in this country um and you know that 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 case really makes you confront those prejudices which people in fairness often adopted quite blindly you know they mm. maybe they didn't think about it. it you know i'm sure it wasn't an overt cruelty but you know the the whisperings behind people's backs the prejudices like you know, that that forced a lot of um, silence in society. And I'm sure that had an influence on Anne not feeling that she could go to any adults about her predicament and to look for medical help when she needed it most, you know, and to instead, you know, turn to, I mean, I, I don't know what was going on through her on her head at the time and just surmising maybe it was just because it was a place that was quiet and away from, from you know, the the public eye where she went to give birth to her baby. But perhaps in a way she felt that, you know, she'd be somewhat protected by, you know, the Virgin Mary mm. in her grotto where she went to give birth. Such was the strength of kind of religious belief at the time, I suppose, and the power of it. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I... Uh just was curious looking at the headstone in in the Irish Examiner as well, which is included as part of what you've written. And that tells a story in itself because the headstone is 
dedicated to Anne Lovett and her baby. I don't think the baby's named on the headstone. She called him Patrick. Was that right? Was the Patrick? The Patrick, name? yeah. Yeah, was given. To, but I, I don't see that name. But here's the thing. Less than when you look at the dates, April 22nd, 1984, Anne's younger sister, Patricia, she was only 14, died by suicide. So tragic. Isn't yeah, it? so tragic. Yeah. My yeah, and often, but isn't that often the way in life when there's one tragedy, it causes a ripple. It's not just that one tragedy. It causes such a ripple throughout that family, throughout their friend group, throughout the wider community. Um, you know, yeah, one, one tragedy often sparks another, doesn't it? it but does. so tragic. She was, it was just a few months after mm. and she was her younger sister. And what could have those two girls gone on to accomplish in their lives? You know, they were both described as being very bright and bubbly. Um, I know Anne was very creative. She was involved in creating her local, um, her school magazine in, in the Mercy Convent, the school she went to in Granard. Um, she was, you know, she, she had so much, she could have contributed. They both could have contributed so much to Irish society. But instead, because really of, of prejudices at the time, their lives were snuffed out. Um, and it's just so tragic. Mm. And um, mm. Anne's father died a short time afterwards as well, still quite a young man in his 50s. Um, he was. So, yeah, yeah. Chairman, it, uh, 54 years of age. The mum lived on the main street of Granard uh, mm-hmm. up until quite recently, 2015. She died aged 81. But, yeah, an absolute story of tragedy on that headstone, one after the other. I suppose the question then is, she was only 15, you know, and, and I suppose it's something that's never been delved into, you know, the pregnancy. How did that come about? There's never been anything about that. Well, Rosita Boland in the Irish Times, who's done some excellent work on this case, she did interview, she was the first person and perhaps the only person, I'm not sure, to interview um, Anne's boyfriend at the time. But it's it's never it's never been clear exactly who the father was. Um, so, so yeah, that, that kind of remains a mystery to some extent. Mm, it does indeed. Um, today, if you roll on Ireland, you know, all these years later and you think of the changes that you have been speaking about there that have happened in Irish society subsequently. Today, you know, God bless us, it's not the same issue at all, is it? Thank God it isn't. You know what I mean? A pregnancy happens. Well, you know, we've grown up a lot and it's dealt with it and it's out in the open. You would like to think in the majority of cases, vast majority, nearly all. Yeah, it has. It's it's really changed. And if you look back, I mean, if yeah, if you look back at the environment at the time, you're so right. We have come on leaps and bounds, really, as a society, haven't we? And we have opened up so much as a society. Um, one thing I was actually surprised to hear when I was talking to a local from Granard, they said that there's still so much kind of secrecy just around this case. Not, I'm not saying for a second that you know pregnant women in Granard would be treated like that yeah. anymore at all. Um, but they said that you know, that whenever something comes on the TV or the radio, that, you know, in a pub or whatever, that locals immediately ask for it to be turned off, that there still is a lot of a lot of secrecy and closure around that particular issue. But absolutely, in general, Irish society has has changed so much. And just can I say as well, because I think the people of Granners feel that they get a, a lot of criticism and stick for this tragic, tragic case. But I think I say it in the piece as well, like, although Anne obviously died in Granard, like this could have happened in any Irish town or city in Ireland, the same attitudes, the same beliefs, the same kind of power structures were evident everywhere. So it's it's not a story. It it happened in Granard, but it really could have happened anywhere. And, you know, poor Granard, you know, wasn't unique um, in, in that way at all. 
And then the, the whole, uh, read this article, folks. It's brilliant because she was found by schoolboys as well. The local priest was involved. The doctor, she was taken to Mullingar, the nearest uh, to her home first uh, with the baby and then to Mullingar Hospital where she was pronounced dead later. It's just a, a tragedy beyond belief, really, when you sit here in uh, 2024 and consider what happened uh, back then. Listen, I... I congratulate you again. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Check it out, folks, in the Irish Examiner. It's online there. Read it. It is so informative. And I'm so pleased. And thank you for joining me on the show today, Liz. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Bye. That's Liz Dunphy there from the Irish Examiner, reflecting on the death of Anne Lovett and her little baby boy called Patrick 40 years ago this very day. And I lived in those times, Louise. I lived, I remember this story. I was, you know what I mean, at that stage, just making my way in life. And I can tell you, Louise, uh, if a, a young girl was pregnant, oh my God, it was the greatest crime of all, Louise. Mm, disgrace and crime. Oh, disgrace mm. on the family. It had to be hidden. The shame of it. I don't think... If you're listening to me today and you lived through it like myself before, or you understand, if you didn't live in that era, you could not understand how families just couldn't deal with this. Mm. And it was a societal thing in yeah, Ireland. Yeah, shunned. Oh, totally. And you know, the, you heard there about girls being whisked away. Where are they? They're gone and had their babies or whatever. It was shameful. It's a shameful stain on our history. And culpable our church and state and people bought into this as well. By God, we've come a long way in Ireland, I can tell you since. And thank God we have as a people and a society. It was dark, Louise. I mean, mm. it was really, and I, I would have known some girls at that stage who found themselves in that situation. It was truly, truly awful. And now life, new life is mm. welcomed. And that's just wonderful. And it's a, it's a life that's going to come into this world and that's what we've got to remember always. But my God Almighty, 40 years ago, this very day, that young girl perished with her baby at the grotto in Granard. If you've anything to say, I would like to get in touch as I am getting your message. Thank you. 086-1800-658 is a WhatsApp or text number if you'd like to say anything to us on late lunch this afternoon. Stay with us. Oh my God, Jerry! I watched that story on television around Christmas time. It was unreal. And as I listened to you there talking to that lady, the cheeks, the uh, tears are running down my cheeks uh, as you talk about it again. It's so sad. It would break any heart, says a listener. Jerry, she was only a child. Some adult male got her pregnant, uh, says Anne. Well, nobody knows actually. You heard there, uh, Liz saying nobody knows who the dad actually was, and that has never come out. Hi, Jerry. Isn't it crazy how the fathers? of those babies never committed such a sin or brought shame on their families or were sent away to be seen again. That is the truth, isn't it, Louise? The shame always fell on the woman, on the yeah. woman who was carrying Women the child. Really second class citizens. Yes, like that. that is the truth. It, re- mm. it really is. Men um, were never blamed for anything. Slap in the back. Eileen, Eileen's been on to say, look at the comments. Eileen's been on to say, Jerry, keeping face with the neighbours was more important than that girl mm. and her baby to their parents you know that's a very good point you, you make there as well uh, Hi Jerry. I've been there 40 years ago but thank God I've been in contact with my son for the last few years yeah. there's a listener who was in the same situation 40 years ago but in contact 
Isn't that fantastic? Mm. That child was obviously uh, adopted and uh, so on and so on. They go there. Thank you indeed for getting in touch with us on the show. We remember her and love it and our baby today, 40 years on on late lunch. Coming up after two in the show, he's home. Yes, our great Irish-American friend, John Shanahan, the man with the big voice, is in studio with us after two on late lunch. And remember, we are announcing the winner of our €1,000 prize for your January story after three in the show. Stay with us. If you're just joining us on Late Lunch, uh, opening the show today, Liz Dunphy was chatting to me about Anne Lovett and her baby boy, who 40 years ago today, the baby was born and Anne died. Both of them died at the grotto in Granard. And you've been uh, coming back to me with your uh, comments and opinions. Peter's been on to say, Jerry, my mother had her baby in 1954. It was taken away. She was taken away in a van to Castle Pollard. It was known as the baby factory at the time. She went in in December and came back in May. Had to go up to the front of the church every Sunday because she was a sinner in front of everybody. Can you fathom that, Jerry? What a disgrace, says Peter. Oh, what a disgrace that was indeed. Imagine, just think about that, folks, what that was like. Thank you for getting in touch with us, Peter. Another one there to say, just listening to you there, Jerry, would give you the shiver. So sad and stomach churning. The poor girl and what she and her family went through. I was only coming 10 years of age when that happened. And I remember it still to this day as clear as day. The church, religion and the state to blame. Thank you indeed for your comments. Keep them coming. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. I am so delighted to say hello to my next guest. Normally we're talking by phone. Thousands of miles away he is in Houston, Texas. But today he's live in studio on Late Lunch. John Shannon, welcome home. Thank you very much, Jerry. It's a delight. Delight to be back. And grand to see you and the lovely Louise in the control room. The two of you award-winning broadcasters. Terrific work. Thank you so much indeed. And thank you for those kind words. We're going to talk about local matters in a minute because I know you're deeply involved still here in the Northeast. But in a general sense, we've been uh, uh, talking to you to keep tabs on what's going on in the States and the world. John, uh, you and I were talking a moment ago there off mic. You've lived longer than me. You've experienced a lot more than me. The world is in chassis at the moment. Uh, it is, Jerry, and it's a terribly unfortunate situation. There's a lot that we don't know about what's going on. Uh, and I want to reflect for a moment on the simple question. It will begin with this. What would Mr. Lincoln say? What would Mr. Lincoln say? Abraham Lincoln, elected president in 1860, facing the prospect of a civil war, a nation coming apart, a nation that had struggled to come together and now coming apart in 1860 and 61. And so we find ourselves, ironically, all these years later, in very much the same sort of situation, where the, where the, the commitment to a national, a national experience, a national government, is really now being called in question. Because this is much more than just an election that we're facing in 2024. It's a referendum on whether we, the people of the United States, the first words of the American Constitution, whether we, the people of the United States, or we will remain committed to a national system of government, a federation of 50 states, and remain together or not. And Mr. Trump has, has drawn the line very clearly. He's laid it out. He has said, if I am elected, 
the hell with the Constitution, and we'll, we'll, we'll do it my way as a dictator. And, the, and that's all pub, published, published material. I don't make any of that stuff up. It's all ready, ready, readily available to be seen. And so the question the American people have to face is whether they will choose to perpetuate our now old 200-some-odd-year-old democracy or give it up to the carnival barker who says, I want it all for myself. John, I never thought he'd come back. Firstly, I never thought he'd get be elected president in the first place and, and, and he defied all the odds and got that um, even though it was a, a closer on thing with Hillary Clinton. Then he's kicked out democratically by Joe Biden. He says, I wasn't kicked out. I actually won it. He tried to, you know, um, underpin the lie and, and people helping him with right. that. Right. I thought he'd be gone then for, and, and yet he's back now and the is there anyone within the Republican Party? Nikki Haley right is still sticking in there. She won't be there. He'll get the nomination. What, what is it? Is it just power at any cost? Is that the, the motto of the Republican Party now? I think it is. And I salute Liz Cheney, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, and others. There are a small number of others who have stood up for principle, stood up for history and tradition, stood up for the democratic principles that the United States is, is essentially constituted by. So, yes, there are some. But unfortunately, Jerry, and for all of your listeners, the answer is not very many and not very powerful. One of the things that's shocking is a document that's been published not long ago, relatively recently. It's called Project 2025. Now, a lot of people would say, well, what is Project 2025? That is actually the Trump game plan that's been written down and now published, where Trump and his many of the loyalists that served with him in the last time have gotten together and laid out what they're going to do to the government of the United States should he get elected. And the contents are really, truly shocking. And of course, there are implications for the war in Ukraine and Europe. Well, we sit yes, here today are. for us. You know what I mean? The American have always been the guarantors of peace in, in Europe as Russia threatens, you know, the Ukraine. And what happens beyond that? You have the Middle East situations at Tinderbox at the moment. And God knows what's going to happen there as well. And if he comes in, there'll be a different slant on it, too. The world will be thrown into chaos. And that's only my personal opinion. Of course, his supporters would say different. They'd say not at all. That that ain't going to happen. But, John, look at the other side um, to the president at the moment, Joe Biden and his people. Uh, people say they're anonymous at the moment. They're, they're not campaigning. They're not taking this fellow on. What's your take on that? What are we going to hear from the Democrats? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'd like to answer it in two ways. First, with respect to the the relationship of the American government to Europe and NATO. As we sit here in Ireland, every time a Russian aircraft, Russian bear aircraft, a uh, long-range surveillance and bomber aircraft, flies over the north, north of Ireland, comes over the top of England, flies over the north of Ireland, who responds to that aircraft? Who chases it out? It's an American airplane based at RAF Lakenheath in the northeast of England. And so uh, the American relationship with NATO and its ability to hold NATO together is not only critical to Europe, it's especially critical to Ireland. Ireland depends on a strong NATO and a strong support from the United States. Trump has indicated clearly that he has no interest in NATO. And that's a very ser serious problem should he get elected. Now to the question of Biden. Yes, I agree with you. His his campaign efforts have really been not 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 sufficient to get the job done. Now, granted, granted, it's the last day of January. It's early. It's early, and I think what he's doing is conserving his money. 
Trump is raising a lot of money based on scare tactics. Uh, and just in the last week, really only in the last few days, have we seen out of the Trump campaign, I'm sorry, out of the Biden campaign, a, a, a newly energized effort to start reaching out, reaching, reaching out to the voters, explaining what the good work that Biden has done. And I, I make no bones about it. I mean, I, my first my first degree was in economics. I understand the, the economic side pretty well. Biden has done a wonderful job of doing the things that several presidents before him have promised, and finally Biden is doing it. He's built the infrastructure. He's built the jobs program. He's kept inflation under control um, and, and, and made America strong, not only at home, but abroad as well. He's respected across all of the European nations. Indeed, all, all foreign countries respect him. With respect to the war in Ukraine, we have to keep our commitments to Ukraine. They're doing an amazing job there. We've got Irish, some Irish charities supporting Ukraine robustly. We've got good friends involved in it, back and forth to Ukraine. We owe Ukraine everything that we can support, give them to support them. And when I say we, not only Europe and, and Ireland, but certainly the United States. Uh, there's a lot more to be done, but we've, need, we've got to keep it going. We've got to have the support of the Congress to do it. Why? Because it's a proxy war. It's a proxy war where if Ukraine falls, Poland will be right behind it. And when Poland goes as a NATO member, it'll be hell to pay for everybody. Now, the Middle East, people listening to us today will say, ask John about the Middle East. And Biden has come in for criticism on the Middle East, especially yes. in Ireland yes. here. A lot of criticism. People are saying, Joe, you can stop the war. You can talk to this man Netanyahu and uh, call this off and get a ceasefire. And he has committed to the two-state solution. That is for sure. And he's not demurring from that by any means. You're absolutely right. The two-state solution is the only solution uh, in, in the middle in Palestine. Uh, the Palestinians deserve uh, a free peaceful, democratic country. We deserve every, to do everything we can to make that happen. Uh, and while there's, a, while there's a lot of anti-Israel sentiment, particularly here in Ireland right now, the reality is that uh, you know, we got to remember how Israel came to be. It came to be as a result of refugees fleeing uh, Europe at the end of World War II. So as bad as the situation is Israel right now, and they have a thug of a president, and I will em emphasize that again, a thug of a president, who deserves to be in the courtroom and not in the leadership. But hopefully that will happen sooner rather than later. But the American government has got a tricky line to walk. It's got to keep peace with Israel. It's got to keep Israel essentially doing the things that, that it needs to, to solve problems in the Middle East, while at the same time dealing with the thugs in Hamas who want to blow all of that up. And now this situation with Hamas is, is extending to other uh, Iranian-backed rebels in the region where we've now got conflicts going on in Syria and in Lebanon. We've got to keep those under control. I'm going to take a short break on late lunch. It's not often we have this man in studio with us. I want to chat to him more. Has indeed the greatest voice on radio. He has indeed. Let's bring it local, John, because you've lived here for a number of years. You've been involved in an awful lot. And I know you've been home for a couple of weeks and you're working on many things while you're here. Not enough hours in the day. Um, look, uh, when you see what's happening, you have been Drogheda base for a number of years and the greater Drogheda area. It's exploding, isn't it, John? It is exploding. Um, we're delighted to see a lot of development going on. But with the development comes challenges. And the local authorities really need to step up and make the, a deal with those challenges so that the quality of life isn't degraded as a result of growth. And as a town planner, and Jerry, you know my background, this is what I've committed my life's work to. And what you want to see is, is opportunities for housing, opportunities 
opportunities for jobs, opportunities for mobility, but at the same time, it all has to be carefully planned, or sure enough, just like anything else, goes to hell in a handbasket. Um, Fortunately, there's some good news afoot. The local, the uh, the across the, the port the port access road is going in. Uh, we hope to see that completed. The bridge over the railroad track completed. Uh, the government's going to have to fund that. The government needs to make a serious commitment to mobility here in the Northeast region because, frankly, we are what we are. We're a, we're a suburb of Dublin, and not only are we a suburb of Dublin, we're the meeting place between Dublin and and, and Belfast. And so we have this unique situation. We're a transport center. We're a, an industry center. We've now got this new port expansion underway. Baymore looks like it's going to go ahead now, and that's going to mean uh, new jobs here for the region. I'm excited about that. I think that this is a, a long-neglected situation. The Baymore port was promised when I first came here in 2007, and now it here it is 17 years later, and then finally it looks like it might be getting underway. Um, we need to get the, the bullring solved. I mean, Kevin Callan was, uh, was chatting the other day about the terrible condition of the, uh, of the bullring. And hats off to you, Kevin, for doing so. But we need to get that, that issue solved. And we've got some fine transport planners here in Ireland. Uh, we need to bring them in, take a hard look, and then make the commitment to put the, uh, the money into the infrastructure so that we can all get around and, and be peaceful with one another. When you mention all that, John, and uh, Drogheda is a microcosm of uh, developments that are happening happening in Navin and Dundalk, and they're, they all lie Kells and Trim within our own listenership area here. The issue of, you know, you've mentioned a number of key factors there, and you are a planner, but leisure and recreation. We often, haven't we made that mistake so many times in Ireland in the past? Build, 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 houses, 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 houses. And nothing for the people. Oh, I'm laughing, yeah. Jerry. First thing that comes to mind in this area is Mosny. What happened to Mosny? What happened to the opportunity for a summer camp for young for youngsters, which Mosny was all about? Well, that's all gone now. And yes, in fact, I was talking uh, to Trevor Connolly yesterday. Trevor is the is the manager for the business improvement district on this very subject about t- taking an initiative to focus business economic development opportunities not only on the traditional opportunities of industry manufacturing manufacturing and so on, but bringing in leisure opportunities into the region. And I really think that's important. I hope the locals and I hope the local town, local officials will recognize that that's not only something that's fun, but it's also something that's badly needed by the local population. Yeah, it's essential. In a general sense, where we sit here, you have been here when you hear that there's a breakthrough in Northern Ireland, yes. you know, and we are so close in the northeast to our neighbours in the north. And this is a small little island that we share as well. That's really positive, isn't it? That and hopefully it will. Ha- I always worry a little bit. There's a uh, what do they say between cup and lip? There's often there's a, a slip. slip. Yes. Yes. I hope I'm wrong, but it looks good. Well, I'm excited about it. I mean, I I, I belong to an organization that has supported cross border development and uh, uh, in essence getting rid of the border over time. And I think that really the failure of Brexit. And I have I would be blunt in saying so. I think that the 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 British people made a choice. I think it was an unwise choice, uh, sold to them as a rotten load of porridge uh, by a couple of hucksters who've now gone from the political scene. But uh, they've made the choice. They did. They went down the road with Brexit, uh, and fr- and frankly, I think it's now given us more impetus to get finally the North and South joined together. Uh, that will take some time, but that's in the Good Friday Agreements. Uh, something that we all need to support. Uh, certainly, the United States does. Certainly, the Biden administration. 
administration does. And Joe Biden understands that. He's a Louth man. He understands the, the, the cross-border agreements. And so we can look forward to that, can't we? They're going mad in mail. <laughs> 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 when you give him loads, so there's a tug of war with Joe going on and has been in, in the country. But I suppose, John, the big thing is, you know, the unionists have have made this move. It will be history uh, when Michelle O'Neill is named uh, first minister. First minister, right? It's a big job, though, c- to convince over a million people whose loyalties we have to say are to the UK. Are to, I, I don't know whether it works the other way around. To be honest with you, when it suits them in London, it does, and I don't think they ever see that. But it's a big job to convince people to throw the lot in with you. That takes years and decades and a lot of time, doesn't it? Well, hats off to the Irish to Irish leadership. And I mean, truthfully, we've had good leadership uh, in, in Dublin. Uh, we've They've conducted themselves well. Look at what happened. And just to think back, just in the very recent future, Jer- past, look what, look what we did to recover from 2008. Look at what we did to recover from the economic bust. I mean, I remember sitting outside the Grand Hotel in Malahide talking to my stockbroker and trying to sell Bank of Ireland shares as they were all headed south before, before they became worthless uh, in 2008. And look at what's happened in the region since then. We've seen terrific economic growth. The banks have recovered. We did it in partnership with Europe, to be sure. The, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the trio that came over from Europe uh, stayed on top of it. But the Irish fought their way back. Now, how does that reflect on what's going on up north. The people up north should have confidence that any country that can do what we did in the years following 2008 would be a welcoming place for them to be. And I hope that message comes across. We moan in Ireland. I don't have to remind you of this. It's part of the Irish culture, Jerry. I moan and become, Louise says to me, you're becoming a bigger moaner as the time goes by. But anyway, you know, we are moaners in Ireland and we always look across and think the grass is greener. But, you know, I was thinking of you coming here today and many things you've touched on there. And despite and love it, we talk about that 40 oh, years ago and how we've come such a long right. way from then as a society and people. It's not a bad place to live. Oh, of course not. Of course not. Uh, in fact, it's a perfectly delightful place to live, even when the weather is just perfectly terrible. I just came in from outside. I know about that. I've been walking around the farm this morning uh, and with a builder looking at things that have to be done. And uh, yeah, it's it's miserable. But when it's beautiful, Jerry, it's always it's just wonderful. And the reality is that it's a small price to pay when you put your when you put your boots on. It's a small price to pay for living in a wonderful, peaceful, lovely land. And that's the truth of it. You know when you look at other places. I was watching a documentary last night on North Korea and a family who escaped from it. Yeah. Oh my word, John. When you look at those poor people and what they have to live in. And I know we, we moan about this, that and the other and we give out. We, we're always giving out. We're giving out about this and giving out about that. Whinging, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? When you analyse it and drill down it, right. of course we have problems still right. and it's not all a bed of roses here. But overall, Ireland's good. Ireland is good, and look at and we prove we're being good because look at all the people we attract to come here. Mm. You know, we were sitting having lunch today. Ladies next to us speaking an Eastern European language. I had no idea what it was. We bring people in from all over the world here who want the things we have. We want peace. They want security. They want to be accepted. Uh, they want to be in, a, in, a, in an integrated society. We offer all of those things, and good for us for doing so. Mm, and uh, this year is going to see local elections, European elections. And who right. knows? There could be a surprise general election even before those or after those. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, 
not white smoke yet, John, but smoke, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard the I heard the stories about the possible local election as well. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, you know, it's it's a challenging time. Um, it's a time for accountability. The two the two traditional parties, Sinn Fein, I'm sorry, Fianna Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, have got to decide if it's really worth their worth their effort and their while to remain apart. John Bruton had a few things to say about this years ago, uh, and you know I think that it's time for it's time for coalitions. It's time for you know asking not what's best for my party, but what's best for my country. Mm, if, if only they would adopt that a little more, it'd be a fantastic way of thinking. But you know the old <laughs> tribal rivalries and the breakdowns and the way I they know. go. John. But we are evolving, John. It is evolving. The political system is evolving. Everything like that. We have an eager young population as well. And Isn't I, that wonderful? Jerry. Yes, really, yeah. it's wonderful to see the young people, you know, busy working uh, and finding a future here, and not having to trek off to Australia to look for tomorrow's bre- bread on their table. Well, you know what? A breath of fresh air has swept into late lunch studios this afternoon. I always love my conversations with you. I thank you for joining us again today. Safe journey back to the States. I know you will be back again frequently. And thank you for all of the times you oblige us uh, chatting to us. We will be talking this year because the election in the States are imminent and we will be touching base regularly. Happy with to you. do so, Jerry. John Shannon, for the moment. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. You're a superstar, Mr. John Shanahan. Yes, he is. That's Love Inc. on your late lunch this Wednesday afternoon. And just reminding you, we're giving away €1,000 on the show after three today to the best January story we've heard over the last uh, few weeks. Stay with us for that and you'll find out who it is and what the story is. Mary McCarthy is waiting for me patiently on the line and she's not happy with our charity shops. Afternoon, Mary. Hi, Jerry. I feel I'm always complaining. <laughs> we were just talking about giving out on the show a little while ago, but you're looking. Oh, it's, no. It's part of the Irish. It's part of our makeup, Mary. Don't worry about it at all. Listen, I loved, <laughs> I loved what you had to say about the charity shops. You're finding that actually it's expensive to go charity shopping, especially in Dublin. Especially in Dublin, Jerry. Now, I don't want to come down on charity shops because they're, they're such a force for good, right? And their costs are going up, just as all of our costs are going up. But there is this avalanche of poor quality fast fashion. Like, for instance, you can buy... I, I was in a charity shop there on Friday and there was a top from Zara for nine quid. And if I, on a good day in the sale, I'll get that for maybe cheaper. Or even if I want to buy it, buy it new, it's not that much... So I just, I, I think charity shops have lost their way a little bit. And in what, Dublin anyway. Yeah, what's the reason? You sort of say, and, it's, and you make a very interesting point, and I can see the point you're making, is, is the issue with resellers. There is an issue with reselling, Jerry, because you've got all these sites. It's, it's fashionable now, right, to say, oh, no, this is, um, you know, pre-owned, right? Like if someone says that's a gorgeous top, it used to be fashionable to say, oh, no, I got this from pennies. But now it's fashionable to say, no, no, this is pre-owned. It's kind of like a little marker of, you know, you're a better person, right, because you're not buying new stuff. So it's trendy. So you've got all these online shops like Depop, right? And people are, they are picking up good stuff in the few charity shops that haven't cottoned on. And they're, they're reselling it. And... That is one of the reasons why charity shops have put up their prices. But 
My big bugbear is I always feel charity shops, their main customers are people who just are finding it hard to buy brand new stuff. Yes. And there's also a huge sustainable market now, Jerry. Like there are people who will say, no, I'll go to the charity shops first and see can I find the welly boots there and then I'll go and buy new ones. But I still think, look, you know, if you look at all the research that shows that so many people are struggling, it just makes, it's logical that most people cha- shopping in charity shops are there because they have to be there, right? Yeah. And, and you know, you're right. I I understand what the shops may be trying to do to deter the resellers who are then making a profit selling them online. But at the end of the day, I think the other point you make is valid here. If they're inexpensive in charity shops, they're more. Li- it's more likely, as you say, people will buy them, number one, and then get use out of them for, for a time and return them. So, so the circle, it, it keeps going. Exactly. That's it, Jerry. So you want the circular economy and charity shops look they're trying to raise as much for their charity but my point in the piece was I think now we've got this climate crisis their their big role should really be to encourage this circularity of stuff right and not even close like also like charity shops I think out of there are 65 million sales a year uh, there's nearly 500 of them in Ireland but out of that uh, 43 million is closed so the rest is actually like homeware you might pick up a bowl or a teapot. So let's say I like I I have this. I love teapots, Jerry. I've got so many of them, but I could probably give away half my teapots. I've got six teapots. I can give away half them, and I probably would. But I've kind of bought them in Avoca and nice places. If I bought them for a fiver in the charity shop, I might use that teapot for six months and then say, actually, I'm kind of sick of looking at that green teapot. I'll give it back. <laughs> so I just think when you've no sunk cost into something, you know, you know, like it's 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 just human nature. Yeah. If you go and spend, it's the same, Jerry. If you go and spend ninety quid on a pair of cords, right? You're not going to even if you're sick to death of them and you know you're not you're not going to wear them that much. Like you'll still leave them hanging up in the wardrobe until you're dead, probably. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, because you spent the ninety quid. It's just the way we're made. Like we we don't like sunk costs, but. But if you pick that up for three fifty in your local charity shop, you'll wear the cords and then you'll be like, Do you know what? I'm sick of these second cords. Oh, excuse me, I don't mean sorry. sorry <laughs> yeah, but you know what, Mary? You'd I'll look, give them back. Wouldn't, wouldn't you look well laid out in the cords? You know what I mean? They'd be ninety well spent. You'd look well in the box. They'd be saying, Oh God, he was dressed beautifully there. There's one thing, I'd never wear cords. I hate them. I know I shouldn't have said chords now, Jerry. I'm not putting you down as a chords man, okay? Like I don't even know what a chords man is. <laughs> they, were, yeah, they remind me of years ago when we hadn't a shilling. Never mind charity shops. I don't know where we got our clothes from, but everyone was wearing cords. But I do know, no disrespect, them. There are lovely cords you can buy nowadays, but the old ones I'm thinking of. No thanks, baby. But here's the thing: you mentioned who a relation of yours was in your niece in Barcelona. Tell us about that. This is very interesting. Okay. Yeah, so my niece, Isabel, she is 20, and she is very into the second hand. Like, all her pals, they all wear second hand. Like, they are very much into that. So she went off to Barcelona, and before she went, she, she said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to bring anything because I'm going to buy all my stuff there. And I was like, that's a bit risky. And she was like, no, 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 because she's friends living, like, in college in the Netherlands, and it's the same in like, Berlin and different places abroad. The charity shops are really well run and they're really, really cheap. And they have this mentality that they want high turnover. They want everything out the door every month. So what they do is, in Barcelona, there's a chain of uh, Humana charity shops. And what they do is they reduce the price 
as the month goes on. So uh, for the last few days of the month, everything in the shop is brought down to four euro and then it goes all the way down to one euro. They're basically essentially giving away stuff for one euro because they just want it out the door. And what happens is it's all bought up. Everyone wears it and then it might come back, you know. So mm. it's just, it's more of a circular. I, and I, you know what, as charity shops in Ireland, we're always a little bit, a few years behind. Like we're a few, in the UK now, charity shops have been trendy for decade and it's only now that you've got the likes of NCBI which actually changed their name to Vision Ireland they've gone vintage now in the last kind of 18 months and they, they actually sell their stuff on Depop and eBay like the good stuff they get in yeah. which when I saw that I was a little bit like you know I, I, I actually interviewed it was for another paper and I, I, I did a, a feature on them and the manager she used to work in Topshop and now she runs uh, um, Division Ireland uh, shop and she was yes. telling me like it was a great thing you know she was saying oh like it's brilliant we, like we, we actually got this Dior top in and we're selling it now on this online shop Depop for like you know 200 quid or whatever but I, all I felt was oh no oh no this is not the, right, the way to do it because what you really want to be doing is you want people to be buying that Dior top for not very much money and then giving it back wearing it giving it back you want you know we're not promoting we're not promoting as much circularity as it could be. Yes. The prices are high, you know. Mm, and, and just a distinction, vintage shop versus charity, a difference? You'll, you'll pay more in the vintage shop, will you? You'll pay more at the vintage because they won't have, you know, they won't have the pennies um, tracksuit bottoms in the vintage as well. <laughs> of the but cords, of the cords. Are the cords. I'm sorry, Jerry. no, I didn't. <laughs> I love cords. I have to say, I love cords. I think cords are great, although I did buy my husband a pair of cords and he's never worn them. Oh, no, I know. Anyway. Good man. He's in my camp. Your husband is in my camp. Fair juice to him. <laughs> um, but, but the thing is, Jerry, like, now you've got the likes of Vision Ireland and they have, um, they've got loads of shops around Ireland. I don't mm-hmm. know the exact number, but it's a huge chain. But they are now, they're, they're, they are very like a vintage shop. There is not much difference now to a swanky vintage shop. And I just think they're, they're straying from... Yes. And I feel bad saying it because charity shops are fantastic. They already do so much. And, and also for the community, like there's over 6,000 volunteers working in these mm, charity shops. It's, mm. it's such a great force for good and people should really go out and support them. But I've been that mother who's gone in to buy football boots and you're like, well, I could get the brand new ones for a few euro more than what they're trying to sell me here. Yeah, well, I just that, think that's wrong. that says it all. When you're telling me that, that really does highlight it. And I know they have to pay their rents and they have to sustain themselves and they have to make money for the charity. But we hear loud and clear what you're saying. And I think you've you've hit the nail on the head here. It's got to be accessible to the masses that you can go in there with a few euro and pick up some stuff and then it goes back and it goes in that circle again. And another thing I picked up, which are six teapots, I'm a like that as well if you went into your home and looked at all the stuff you have multiples of should we don't need them at all should we be we'd be in the clover if we all got rid of all that stuff and passed it round to everybody else listen I love what you've been writing about check this wonderful woman out in independent newspapers she writes there all the time she always has something to say on very interesting topics and now you you know now you know Mary now you know tell him this evening you talk to a man today and you understand why he's not wearing the cords All right, (laughs) (laughs) Jerry. can I say one thing yes go ahead yeah I also think the government should give huge support to charity yes. shops because they are they are superior to your retailer who is making brand new things and forcing us to buy new things and consume new things. And as you say, Jerry, our houses are bursting with stuff. 
they are. Things. They are. And, and we and should, like the government should give them more subsidies, you know. Okay, definitely. there you are. You have, that's a pitch for Mary today. To those ears listening in local politics, national and international charity shops, keep them in mind. Mary, you're great to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Terry. Take Terry, care. Bye. Bye bye. The wonderful Mary McCarthy there. What's your experience listening to us today with charity shops? Is that your experience? Do you think it's become more expensive? What's your take on it? Jerry says a listener I'm just listening to yourself and Mary there I'm only back from New Orleans well there are a million vintage shops and antique shops there it was amazing a treasure trove of goodies compared to the charity shops here in Ireland thank you indeed for that message now let's move on on late lunch Susie Can is Shared Island Project Director at The Wheel the National Association of Community and Voluntary Organisations not that she's busy enough she's now taking on the role of coordinator of Shifting Tides, a new project that brings together coastal communities from the twin shores of our very own Carlingford Lock. And us being on the southern side, sure I'd have to have a word with Susie. Welcome to the show. Hello, Jerry. Thank you very much for having me on. Not at all. Well, you better tell our listeners who are unfamiliar, what is Shifting Tides all about, please? Well, the Shifting Tides project's very new, so they will have barely heard of us unless we've been out speaking to them in their local community groups on both sides of the lock. Um, And it's a new project funded under the Creative Climate Action Fund. And they have a dimension, that's the Creative Ireland programme, they have a dimension of the fund that was specifically targeting shared island or all the island or cross-border projects. And having already met some people around the shores of Cardingford Lock, we thought, what better place to symbolise, I suppose, the work um, in creative climate action in a, in a location um, such as Carlingford. And so what the proje- project's all about is, I suppose, using the arts-based practices that, that are now seen as like really effective ways to help um, make visible um, connections to climate change, to all of the biodiversity issues, all of the crises and challenges that we're, we kind of hear about in the news but to bring those things into what's that for our context. And the context we're looking at with the Shifting Tides project is the lock itself and and things that are going on in the shores of the lock, the underwater of the lock. And we're we're going to be working, we have a creative team that we've begun with um, of of scientists and scientific divers and um, underwater photographers, but also um, foragers and then all the arts practitioners that we hope to engage with throughout. It's a two-year project. And we hope that, you know, we're we're looking at some of the oral heritage, some of the coastal practices that were there in the past and what those might look like in the present and what they might need to look like in the future. Um, And so it's going to be a lot of really fun ways to engage, a lot of ways to learn. And our first, um, we're kicking off with the first performance uh, this coming Saturday in the Heritage Centre in Carlingford, uh, a wonderful um, venue for us. And we're kicking off with a show called Where Seaweed Dances. It's a real family-friendly matinee performance at three o'clock on Saturday. And you can still, there's still a few, just a few seats left. um, And you can find that, uh, well, if you just put in the Shifting Tides project to Eventbrite, you can see tickets there or you can go to the shiftingtides.org, which will give you a flavour more of a detail of what we are, you know, what this project's about. But it's also an unfolding project that we hope to have influence and interest 
from the community around the lock. And so you can also just express your interest um, on the website there as well uh, and tell us what, you know, what does this mm. idea of engagement over a two-year period with arts and marine ecology and intertitles, like what does that bring to mind for you if you're a resident of the lock? And maybe you've got a story to tell us um, from past, present, or maybe you've got a vision yourself for the future, um, or maybe you're a performer or creative. So I suppose it's really about like, you know, bringing attention and focus to this Yes. Wonderful lock. Yes, and the idea is the lock, the future of the lock, living there, the lock itself. And you've mentioned climate action there on a number of occasions. And what I like about this is we often hear that at a at a high level, Susie, but then, you know, bringing it down to a local level and what can I do? I often ask that question. What can I do? What can we do? This is something you can do, shifting tides. Absolutely. And I suppose that we've begun to understand some of the things that we can do on land. You know, people are beginning to think about both their own lives or their own industries or the, you know, where they're working and, and, and think about climate action in those terms. But in some ways, you know, this the, because, uh, you know, we begin to know maybe what's going on under the soil. You hear, you know, children are learning about the soil food web or but we actually for an island nation, we're not so ocean literate. <laughs> we're not so aware yes. of what's going on in our mm. seas around us. So part of it is to engage people in, in, you know, citizen science efforts, in, in things we can tangibly do and enjoy doing and enjoy learning and how we all Like it's not, climate action isn't kind of in one person or one industry's or one community's domain. It's kind of all of us that need to get engaged and find the ways in which we it makes sense to us. And I suppose we wanted to bring this attention to that marine environment and, you know, the, the livelihoods that were generated in that marine environment in the past, the ones that are, are generated from it now, and how we protect those livelihoods and those, you know, that these beauty and biodiversity for future generations. So I suppose it's a conversation. It's not an outcome in the immediate, you know, it's... Yeah. What are those answers going to be for a particular location? And part of that's knowing what's going on first. You know, like yes. what is going on in the lock? What is going on in the intertidal? What's the condition of the seafloor? You know, and there's lots of lovely dive clubs around the lock. So we're, we have already been chatting to divers. You know, then there's things you can do from just the shore. Mm. You look out at the shore, you can tell quite a lot about what's going on from what's up on, on you know, shore areas and beaches, what's growing there, what's tossed up in a storm. <laughs> You know, and you can learn more from, a, you know, the paddleboard, yes. the tourism industry. So we want to kind of engage with that. But then the wonderful thing about the arts is that how do you then interpret that? We know that there are local artists who paint, who take photographs, who write poetry, you know, and we're focused on creating performance, which is why the first, you know, show is a performance. And it's weaving in the, the work seaweed dances is weaving in the story of foraging, the story of uh, we've got some underwater photography that's part of the projection. It's the song, it's music, and it's very engaging for the whole family of all ages. And that we sometimes say children of all ages because you know the way we're all children. Actually. Absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. and, and sometimes bringing us all together <laughs> in multi generational ways yes. in a performance like this yes. is it engages us all. You know, mm, in remembering and sure. what we do love and feel attachment to. 
Anyway, you're talking to one of those with that child luck outlook uh, today uh, on the show where where seaweed dances three o'clock in Carlingford Heritage Centre this Saturday. There's a few seats left. Check it out. Shifting Tides Project on Eventbrite. And you want to get in there quick to get the last few bums on seats. And the project overall is the Shifting Tides Project. Lovely to chat to you today. Wish you well over the next couple of years. We'll be back to this for sure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Terry. Not at all. Susie Can there, who is uh, the project uh, coordinator for Shifting Tides. Exciting times for Carlingford Lock, indeed. Lovely part of the world. North and south, of course, coming together the whole lock. We share it like everything else on this island. We're giving away €1,000 on late lunch after three to one of the January storytellers you've been hearing from over the last few weeks. The Late Lunch Artist of the Week. Artist of the Week. Miley Cyrus for me all this week on Late Lunch I absolutely love her she's fantastic on a personal note um, she came out to her mother at the age of 14 it's uh, said but now she reckons she's gender fluid Uh, she's a vegan and has been a vegan since 2014 and she's actually quite open as well uh, about her recreational use of cannabis and she's been in and out of a lot of personal relationships with different people. She's a real wild child, a complete contrast to where she started out from uh, in her Hannah Montana days. But did you know this? This is something I didn't know about our Miley Cyrus. Yes, her godmother is Dolly Parton. She is indeed. And when Dolly was asked about her recently and all the controversies that surround her, Dolly said, the girl can write, the girl can sing, the girl is smart, and she doesn't have to be, in my opinion, so drastic. But for sure, I'll respect her choices. After all, I did it my way, says Dolly. Can she do it hers? I love it. I really do. Anyway, she is brilliant. She is wonderful. And today I play what's considered to be her greatest song of all time. Yes, there's more to come, I'm sure, from this young woman. It's Miley Cyrus and Wrecking Ball. I came in like a wrecking ball I never hit so hard in love All I wanted was to break your walls All you ever did was wreck me Yeah, you, you wreck me I put you high you Miley Cyrus, my artist of the week on Late Lunch all this week with Wrecking Ball, considered by many to be her greatest ever song. More from Miley in words and song at this time tomorrow, but the excitement's building because after the break, we are going to give away €1,000 on Late Lunch. January, don't be shy, tell your story to me. A hairy moment for you. There's a grand if you do I need to know on the Late Lunch Show Oh, thank you to everybody who came on here and told me their hairy moment stories during the month of January. We love them all and we thank you all. The panel of four judges sat last night and had a muse over the different entries and... We're going to give away €1,000 very shortly on the show. Let's have a chat first to Lynette McEnany. Lynette, Lynette, hello, are you there? Hello, Jerry. How are you? I am really good. Thank you for joining us again on the show. I want you to tell your story again to the listeners because many might have missed it. You're going back a few (laughs) years and you went on a family holiday to Tremor, was it? 
That's right. We went down. There was a fun fair on. Right. And my two girls were, I think, around six and nine. Okay. And so, of course, nothing would do them only go up on the big wheel. Whoa. So my husband wouldn't go, so I went with them. Right. Now, bearing in mind, I was six months pregnant with a very big baby. So I was wedged between the two of them, and it went around and, you know, we'd point into here and point into there and having a great laugh. And we were nearly time to get off and the, um, when the thing stuck. So I looked down and I could see a few people and they were, you know, I don't know, banging and, you know, fixing this, that and the other. But um, my two children, uh, they could have panicked, but we started singing, <laughs> which, you know, you know, was grand. <laughs> but I was busting for pee. And I mean, I was busting. My son was £10. So, so I'm sure the women listening are sitting crossing their legs right now. So I had to pee. So uh, after about, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine, even ten minutes, yeah. we got off. <gasps> Jesus, Jerry, you want to see me running to the nearest <laughs> toilet? Now, when I was on TV4, I lied. I didn't make it. <laughs> I peed me pants. Oh, Lynette. Lucky enough, I had a dress on me. Yes. So I just took them down and I went commando for the rest of the day. <laughs> And you know, this is honest to God, every one of my handbags has a spare pair of knickers in them. Uh, ever since. Panties, a spare pair of knickers. I won't go out of the house without a spare pair, just in case. But Lynette, you're up on the top of the big wheel or the Ferris wheel, as no, they call it. I know, we're just at the very at top, the at the top, two children, one either side of you, and yeah. you pregnant and you dying to go to the yeah. loo. And and, yeah. and there's obviously like 10 minutes up there is an awful long time. Yeah, it's like a friggin' lifetime, Jerry. honest to God. Of course. And of course, the children thought it was great fun. And I said, look, you are so brilliant. He's going to give us another go. And I was, oh my, do you know what? Talking about your pelvic floor exercises. Jesus Christ, <laughs> my, oh, sorry, I shouldn't swear. They did not work that day. They did not work that day. So, you, um, you leaked. You leaked on did. the wheel and, and certainly leaked I when did. you got down for sure. But, I you know, did. I can only imagine, like, you were very calm and collected, I have to say, for the pressure you were under and to have two children and to be stuck up there as well. It's, uh, it's your worst nightmare. Yes. And I had these visions... How are they going to get? How are they going to get me down? Yeah, you know it's okay. Get the children down. Okay. How are they going to get me down? I mean, I had these visions. I said, "Geez, Mary and Joe, they're going to get a crane or something to get us all down." <laughs> but they, you know, and eventually, now I have to say, fair play to them, uh, um, a couple of the chaps who was yes, um, the chaps that was there, the, the, you know, the workers. They give us a whole load of tickets to go in different things. I didn't freaking go on anything. Well, I, I couldn't. There's no knickers on me. I was afraid to be like. <laughs> A hairy moment Educa- for sure. You know, educa- <laughs> <laughs> if oh, the wind geez. had blown. Jerry, <laughs> um, te- uh, honest to God. So, so as I said, to this day, when I see them and I say to myself, 
you're fine getting that you have a pair of knickers in your bag <laughs> there won't One be a bother in my bag well, every single bag I have well Lynette look at that will uh, go down in history <laughs> as your hairy moment for sure because I'll tell you one thing I don't know what I'd done I'd have lost my life I'm no good with heights and I was stuck up on the top of that wheel even for a minute or two I'd have been in panic never yeah. mind with yeah. two small children and uh, being six months pregnant as well and a 10 pound baby oh <laughs> a bruiser for sure anyway Lynette your story is a great one and let me tell you you've won the thousand euro Yes, you have. You are the winner of the thousand euro on late lunch, Lynette. Anyway, I, I hope you don't need those knickers now. That I've just given you the news. Would you be too late? Listen. Yes, you've won. Uh, you are the winner. The, the winner. Mary Louise, thanks a million. I fooled you and a bit. You know, I fooled you a bit. I told you, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? I said to you, you're shortlisted. But you were the outright winner. Four judges all scored for you and you win the thousand euro. There you are. Congratulations, Lynette. Thank you so much. Not at all. You I can are. listen to this back now tonight if we're going to laugh. <laughs> you can't listen to the podcast, is right. Anyway, enjoy your thousand euro. I hope you have oh, a, a great time with it. And thank you for joining us and telling your story. And oh, thanks listen, to everybody yeah, who did. Do you know something? I had, honest to God, I really enjoy, I really enjoy listening to your show. Thank You're you so freaking much. Smashing. Thanks a million and thank you very God much for joining us God today. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Well, you're fed up listening to me <laughs> with this. Let's have the full version of the song. Yes, it is the last day of January. Here's Pilot. <laughs> Fantastic song, 1975, big number one. And it is, of course, January from Pilot. We've got to go now to congratulations again to Lynette McEnany, who wins the €1,000 for her January story. And thanks to everybody who spoke to us on the show. We do appreciate it. Eddie Caffrey's raring to go with the drive here on LMFM Radio. More fantastic music on the way. Stay with us. We'll be back with your late lunch Thursday at 1.30. We'll see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.